Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Privacy International podcast from our Reproductive Rights and Privacy Project. I am Sarah Nelson, and I lead the Reproductive Rights Project here at PI. Today, we're speaking with Narima Wera, who is the program manager of the Sexual and Reproductive Rights stream of work with Kellen. Kellen is the Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network on HIV and AIDS. Would you just mind introducing yourself um, and maybe Kellen as well, what you, what you guys focus on okay. as an organization? All right. Um, so my name is Nerima Were. I am the program manager of the Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights thematic area at Kellen. So Kellen is the Kenya Legal and Ethical Issues Network on HIV and AIDS, and it's a rights to health organization that focuses on four thematic areas. So HIV and TB, Kenyan affected populations, women, land and property rights, and SRHR. And basically we work towards ensuring that within these thematic areas, populations affected can have access to healthcare and health services and the right to health in general. To begin, could you talk a bit about reproductive rights in Kenya, sort of the landscape of reproductive rights in the country? So within like the legal and policy framework, we have reproductive health recognized in our constitution in two places. So we have Article 26.4, which recognizes abortion, even though it's still criminalized, it recognizes that there are circumstances under which it's allowed. And then we have Article 43.1a, which recognizes the right to have such a standard of health, including reproductive health. Actually, there's a third place in Article 27.4 on equality and non-discrimination, which um, uses pregnancy as one of the prohibited grounds for discrimination. So there's a reason for this is that there's a lot of pregnancy-based discrimination in the employment in, within the, employment, the workforce or employment law in Kenya. So the recognition of this was important because of the number of women who have been affected by pregnancy or the ability to get pregnant and how that impacted the ability to access employment services. And also because for the most part, reproductive health and rights were ignored or under accessed by many populations prior to this constitution. So there was that nuance that was necessary. Um, so that's the framework. So there's a number of policies and laws in place to ensure that these constitutional rights are being respected. Um, but in terms of political will to ensure that certain aspects of reproductive health and rights are realized. Um, it's, there's a gap between the aspiration of the constitution and the actual reality of many people's lives. So for instance, um, with access to reproductive health information and comprehensive sexuality education, so CSC is a very huge problem in terms of the contention around it within the country. And for the most part, most students do not get comprehensive sexuality education. Um, there are different variations of it within our curriculum and within the official curriculum for the country. There is family life skills. But there's a gap between, there's a gap both in content and in teaching. So in content, um, there's a high focus on abstinence and there's a high focus on abstinence and sexual transmitted disease, infections and diseases. So the negative consequences of sex and how to abstain from sex. Um, there's not a lot of education around how to protect yourself during sex, um, sexual violence and sexual diversity and diversity and sexuality. There's like almost no content on that areas, on those areas. And then 
On the other hand, in the teaching, we have had quite a few studies by UNESCO and more well, UNESCO um, and APHRC, the African population. Hmm. APHRC, I'm sure I'll give you the correct name later. But we've had studies by them on how teaching of family life skills happen. And for the most part, it's treated as a free subject. So in the sense that if you are not doing well in your curriculum on something else and you take that subject, take that time slot to catch up on math or catch up on geography. And in some aspects, even if it's not a free subject, it's not really, there's no one actually employed to teach specifically that. It's just assumed that maybe it'll be covered in biology or in biology or within C, Christian religious education. So those are some of the major gaps with CSE. With access to contraceptives, we have improved quite significantly as a country on access to contraceptives in the last three decades, but we do still have an unmet need on contraceptives, on access to modern contraceptives in the country. We do still have an unmet need. I think at present we're around 67%, so there's still an unmet need among, for many women, and this is more acute with young women. So 15 to 24, it's more acute, the unmet need is more acute with young women. And then on safe and legal abortion, so this is where it's the most problematic. So we have penal provisions around abortion whereby it is criminalized to access an unlawful abortion. So the clarity is it's an unlawful abortion. So that assumes that there can be a lawful abortion. Um, this doesn't always, it's not always nuanced enough that people understand what a lawful abortion is. But for the most part, um, you can't access an abortion within the public health sector, which then excludes abortions for many women or most women in the country so most you can access an abortion within their private health private health facilities so the circumstances circumstances under which you can access an abortion include life endangerment health endangerment um sexual if the pregnancy is as a result of sexual violence or if any other law permits it so there's a possibility to expand those um requirements or those um there's a possibility to expand that. Uh, we have seen it happen once, the expansion um, in one county whereby you can access a safe abortion for fetal abnormalities, but we haven't seen many expansions at this stage. And now, um, with abortion, safe and legal abortion, the problem is there's a general perception of criminality, of absolute criminality. So there's a lot of people who believe ab abortion is a criminal offense and is illegal across the board and then coupled with the fact that we have high numbers of unsafe abortion, particularly among women 18 to 24, and post-abortion care is available within the public health sector. So you can't access a safe abortion, but you can access post-abortion care if you start your abortion elsewhere. So post-abortion care roughly costs our country so about $5 billion annually, $5 million annually in terms of the public the cost of the public health system which is 500 million Kenya shillings which is a considerable amount to pay to clean up a mess you've created by not availing safe and legal abortion or by not availing um, sexuality education or by not availing access to contraceptives so that's generally there's a massive gap between reality and aspiration with our constitution we do have not we do have a lot of laws and policies in place um, the issue around abortion is it's a bit of a quagmire, but with contraceptives, we have laws in place around that. With maternal health as well, we have laws in place around that. So maternal health, which would 
access to safe access to birth attendance is free and compulsory. So maternity services are free and compulsory at this stage. Now that doesn't necessarily mean like access to skilled birth attendance sits at about 66%. So the reality and the aspiration of the reality, there's always a gap. But we do have the policies in place to secure these rights outside of abortion. You mentioned sort of the gap between uh, the law and what in reality. And is that because of the perception of people not knowing what is legal or what's not legal or how to access different services? Or what is the primary cause of that gap? Do you so a number. So one perception is part of it. So there's a perception of illegality, but then there's also the criminalization of access to abortion um, in the penal code. So the likelihood that a private facility offering abortion services will be harassed by police is very high. Um, also that private, um, private providers will be arrested or harassed is very high. Um, for the most part, even law enforcement doesn't understand the nuances between when one can access an abortion and when, cannot, when one cannot access an abortion. The other thing is that the government, um, the national government, hasn't been um, brave enough to say this is what it means to have the constitutional provision and this is what, what we're going to do is not permitted. They've stuck to that and they haven't actually shifted fundamentally from pre-constitutional era, pre-2010, to actually put um, guidelines in place to ensure that people can access to safe abortion. So we had standards and guidelines that were developed in 2016 and launched in 2016 that were then withdrawn. And there were standards and guidelines but these were withdrawn by the government and at the same time they also um, prohibited teaching, um, prohibited training institutions from um, teaching providers which would be doctors, nurses, clinical officers how to provide safe abortion, so comprehensive abortion care training, so that was also prohibited and to some extent tried to attack the provision of misoprostol. The national government hasn't been very forthcoming about one information and two putting policies in place to ensure that these rights can be realized. So for instance, with safe and legal abortion, um, the issue was we developed standards and guidelines to address maternal mortality and morbidity as a result of unsafe abortion in 2016. But then the government withdrew these and then issued a circular prohibiting teaching um, prohibiting training on comprehensive abortion care amongst medical providers. Um, so now that was in 2016. So there's been a court case to, re to reverse these actions, but it really is just an indication of the political will around ensuring that people can access safe and legal abortions. It's really, it's not there. So even, as, even when guidelines are provided, it's not there. And for the most part, public health facilities will not provide these services unless it's been directed by the Ministry of Health that they can. So it's the quagmire of one having a government that does not have the political will to ensure that this is happening, the criminalization of access to abortion services, even though it says unlawful, a lot of that nuance doesn't come out in the policing of reproductive health. Like people are not the police are not going to go and ask, okay, so is this a lawful abortion or is it an unlawful abortion? Does constitution apply here? They don't ask those questions, they just arrest either the providers or the women. And then finally, it's the perception of criminality amongst communities, which means that most people don't actually look for abortion services at a provider facility, they'll rather do it um, with a quack because there's really a perception that it's illegal. So all these together is why a lot of women cannot access safe and legal abortions.
Helen, for instance, works with um, the Reproductive Health Network, which is a network of providers across the country. So a network of mid-level providers, who, nurses and clinical officers across the country who run private health facilities and provide reproductive health services, including abortion. And normally we have, when we work with them, we work with a legal support network to ensure that they are minimizing their risk towards um, harassment or attack by police. So this existed before the constitutional reform process and started to exist because in 2006, going forward, there was an accusation that um, one of the founding members of the network had was providing abortion and had murdered children. So providing abortions and had murdered children and was accused of murder as a result of providing abortion services. He was acquitted eventually, but it was a very lengthy court process towards his acquittal. And the finding of that case was that obviously a fetus cannot be murdered. Also, there wasn't really evidence tying him to the fetuses that were found, but the finding was the fetus cannot be murdered. But then that network of providers provides these services and the legal support network then goes through this process of ensuring that you're minimizing your risk and that the only thing that is a legal risk for you is the provision of these types of services and that you are compliant in all other areas of law that you require to be compliant such that if you are harassed or, or arrested by only addressing the stigma that comes with uh, providing abortion services and not any other underlying legal issues you might have in place. My next question was around the different forms of technologies that might have come up in the research you did with PI. If you can talk a bit of, about kind of what you highlighted in the research around different types of technologies that are being developed to prevent um, or delay access to reproductive health care. Mm -hmm. We were not able to find as many, when it comes to technology, um, apps, like specific apps. But when we thought about technology, we thought about it quite broadly. And that includes anything that's web-based or internet-based or that can be found online. And that was really our focus. So in terms of web-based, so Citizen Go has had a number of petitions um, around access to safe and equal abortion and the petitions take two forms. Um, one would be attacking an individual or attacking a specific service that's being provided by a specific service provider. So on individuals, the major attacks have been one on Esther Pasares, who is the women representative from Nairobi County at the National Assembly. And then on also the Minister of the Minister of Education, who at the time was serving as the chair of the Kenya Kenya Medical and Kenya Medical Practitioners and Dentists Board. So when he was that chair, so two petitions attacking them, um, Pasaris for supporting reproductive rights and him for allegedly not supporting their petition to have Mary Stops banned. So not that he did that necessarily, but those, those are the nature of their petitions. If they find a specific person and then they'll attack them. So then they would have these online petitions to ask people to sign on to them. Um, other things is that there was a petition against Mary Stops and this was both an online petition and um, an actual petition to the Kenya Medical and Dentist Petitioners Board. So it was online and that I was asking people to sign on. And then following that, they did approach the board who then led an inquiry into Mary Stops Kenya in terms of the types of services they were offering, which resulted in one, the services being banned for a period of time, that was then revisited with them being directed not to provide 
abortions outside of the legal requirements, which would be what the constitution allows for. Um, that and then there were a number of other um, web, um, like social media platforms, grounded mostly on anti-choice narrative. Um, and these were either found on Facebook or most of them are found on Facebook in terms of being able to access things. Um, so social media platforms found on Facebook and really pushing for an anti-choice narrative and what it meant to have an anti-choice narrative. So then we'd have a lot of discussion and from those discussions you'll have a lot of misinformation ongoing. A third thing is that we've seen quite a few articles, online articles, and then what has been interesting is the comment section of those online articles. So you'll see an article around um, CSE or something, or condoms or whatever, and then you'll see people asking questions around that article. And I've seen this quite strongly from the Sozo Church of God, which is one of the anti-choice movements. Okay, it's also a church, but it's also heavily anti-choice. And it really does push itself into that narrative. And I would, you would note comments that they would respond to. And one really prominent one was somebody who was quite concerned. They're like, okay, fine, if you do not want us to use contraceptive, if you don't want us to have abortions, can we then use contraceptives? to prevent pregnancies and the response was yeah it would definitely be better than the murder however you have to contend with the cancer that comes with that so there's just like a lot of mis misinformation so it's not just the articles and the petition that they put in place it's also if you go a little bit deeper into existing articles on reproductive health and rights and how people are interacting around that you start to see how they are in those spaces and what narratives are pushing in those spaces so that's on the online. Do you want me to discuss offline yet? Or? Yeah, yeah. I, how, I'm also interested in how the things like petitions online can result in offline sort of protests. Yes. So a lot of the online petitions have resulted in offline protests, as the as the research indicated. So there was um, the billboards by the Social Church of God, and those were around Nairobi. There were about nine billboards around Nairobi, and with those billboards, each of them varying degrees of misinformation around. So the constitution is quite clear. It says when you can have an abortion, but it also says that life begins at conception. So then all those billboards are grounded around Article 26.1 and says life begins at conception. And then they would have fetuses on them. And then one would show this is what the constitution says, and then the next one would be like, this is me, I'm a fetus, I can feel blah, 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 blah. The next one would be, okay, that's a bit dismissive, but it would be like, I am a fetus, I can feel, I can hear, you can sing to me, then the next one would be, please don't kill me. So there was a number of these and they were targeted at mostly people who utilize these routes to walk, um, to work or form work. So more low income populations that really don't have access to services because private health facilities may be out of their price range and public health facilities don't offer these services. So just deepening the perception of criminality and access to safe and equal abortion. Um, so that was one. The next thing was off the off, off of the online campaign against Marisops and that proceeded into a complaint with the Kenyan Medical and Dentist Petitioners Board on Marisops activities that also that had Marisops prohibited from functioning for almost more than a month at the end of 2017. 
uh, which had significantly negative impacts on, was it 2018? I'm not 100%, 2018, I think. Um, so that was that aspect, um, having my SOPs banned and then also having a chilling effect on anyone providing stephanie abortion services if they're going to be reported to the regulatory authority and have the licensed the licenses challenged or the or possibly lose the licenses to practice as practitioners um we've also seen offline non-sale results from campaigns where we've seen increased activity around cases so for instance two cases one is on the standards and guidelines that i mentioned um, reinstating them. So that was brought to the court by FIDA Kenya to have them reinstated and they were reinstated. And then the next one was on the repeal of the provisions within our penal code that criminalize LGBTQI persons. So those two. So within those two cases, we saw very strong opposition by the same persons, which included um, the Kenya Christian Professional Forum, who are a professional association of Christians who often, they're not really people that are prominent or that you hear much from, but they were able to consistently be present in these cases and attack these cases and attack these cases or attack the position that was being taken by the petitioners. So in one, the narrative was quite successful and that was in the LGBTQI case whereby initially what was alleged by the parties was on the criminalization of LGBTQI persons leads to increased stigma, increased violence and is indirect discrimination and their response was that it's not discrimination, this applies to everyone and this affects and this is recognizing LGBTQI persons will be in contravention of Article 45.3, which is right to a family within this country, which says that a man and a woman, that's how it starts, the right to a family is founded on a man and a woman. So because of that narrative, the court was able to then focus on that narrative and that was where the, that was where the eventual judgment was on, that allowing, that decriminalizing or that removing those criminal provisions would result in LGBTQI persons seeking to get married in this country, though that was never really the case. Um, on the other hand, with Sanders and Guidelines case, these were it reinstated, which was good. However, because of the narrative by Kenya Christian Professional Forum and similar parties, there was the court leaned into the narrative that abortion is illegal, which then means any possibility of having it decriminalized becomes much more difficult because that's a narrative that we've leaned into as a country at this stage. So in cases they're present, they're utilizing other mechanisms to ensure that people who actually offer safe and legal abortion services are being consistently attacked. They're attacking persons who they perceive to be enemies of the anti-choice movement um, on a personal level. So they're attacking Mr. Casares, they attacked um, the current CS for a cabinet secretary member for education. And then finally, with the continuous like billboards and they have, um, there's also like conferences like the Family Life Congress, which happened in Kenya in 2016. So there's conferences around that, there's walks that they have. There was a period of time where they were having something every week in a church. So the Social Church of God and the Christian Professionals Forum, there was an activity every weekend around CSC, abortion, and LGBTQI that was happening in these churches almost on a consistent basis. 
So it's almost like a concerted effort to shift the narrative of reproductive health and rights to a negative in this country and have the public mood around it be negative such that anytime you do go to court or you do petition the president or you have any action grounded in law or grounded in policy or grounded in constitution, anything that might require value judgment is going to be shifted to the negative because of these continuous actions. Hmm. Really interesting. Are they are these groups as against the use of contraception? Do they put as much resources into campaigning against contraception as well? Um, they're not as they're not as prominent about it, but they do have misinformation around contraception. So that's where you see the comments pages and the comments around the negative impact of contraception and cancer. They're not as prominent about it because contraception is something that we have a strong policy framework around and that our government has bought into. So there's not as much room, but they are quite keen to spread misinformation around contraceptive use. Okay, so the global gag rule. So um, the qualitative effects of it has been, obviously, there has been a lot of confusion and fear around what it means, and then very difficult choices for organizations in terms of, do we proceed with US government funding? So from the research that Tika has conducted, they've been able to compare qualitatively the impact in a few places, including Kilifi and Mombasa, and there have been some very negative impacts because some organizations have refused to accept your human as a result of the rule and have actually then had to withdraw reproductive health services for a lot of women. So an estimation of one of the clinics in Kilifi was maybe losing access to services for reproductive health services in general. So this is maternity services, contraceptive services for almost 70,000 women because of a loss of staff and a loss of team members and a loss of funding. And I can definitely send you a link to that research after this. But so those are some of the issues. So there is a lot of confusion on what the implications are and who is obliged to um, police the rather enforces implementation. And then because of that, there's been some blanket enforcement by many primary donors. So a number of the people that we work with, um, for instance, Spa Hostess has been affected by it because and they work with sex workers and they receive money as a secondary recipient. They receive US government funding, but they've been affected by it and they don't always understand the impact of the effect because there's a blanket policing. So any of the nuances within the rule itself aren't being applied. So because within the rule itself, they're protecting life, they're protecting life and global health assistance policy, you are allowed to provide safe abortion services in life endangerment or in cases of sexual violence. So the only, the gap is while our constitution allows health endangerment, that policy does not. But even in instances where it's life endangerment or sexual violence, since no one and people do not understand those exceptions, people have just banned abortion services across the board, which is then made more problematic is private facilities working, providing abortion services based on donor funding aren't doing it, and the government isn't doing it, which then means if you want it, you have to pay for it. And that only depends on whether or not you have money. And that's not always the case for many women. So there's, there is a misunderstanding of the, how the rule applies. There's a 
failure by one, the US government officials in the US, also in Kenya, to explain how this applies. So we actually work in a lot of misinformation and misunderstanding. And that seems to be the that seems to be the practice around how this applies without fully explaining what should be done. And then there's a failure by primary recipients of funding to explain to secondary recipients what the implications of the rule are and just blanketly tell them not to provide any abortion services or, or, or give referrals or give information. So some, those are some of the impacts. So it, it has affected people differently. There's people who refuse to accept just money as a result of it and have the scope of their services has been greatly reduced. There's those who are now not able to provide the services that they were providing. So then you have more women being affected by this. But we don't at this stage have any quantitative data on that. So on the impact, this is, this should be year three. There's, we don't have quantitative data on the impact in Kenya at this stage, but I do believe Tika should be conducting a research on the quantitative data to develop quantitative data and be able to give numbers on how many women are affected, how many people can access services, how many organizations have been shut down as a result of. So these are some of the numbers that we don't have at this stage, but I think we should be getting within the a year. And my last question for you was around what was happening with access to sexual and reproductive health care services in the wake of the COVID crisis, what you guys are sort of okay. seeing at the moment and thinking about. Okay. There's been, there's been a lot that's been going on. It's been quite a difficult period of time in terms of understanding um, what is happening with the government and how policy measures are being reached what decisions are being made and how they're being communicated and what powers the government is utilizing. So there's been a lot of confusion about that to begin with. And we have been in a bit of a quagmire where it's almost like we're in a state of emergency without ever having declared it. So we're not always sure where the state powers are being derived to make certain decisions and how they're coming to those decisions. But when it comes to SIHR services specifically in this period of time, so we haven't we have had a few negative cases we haven't there hasn't been a direct correlation between covid-19 and srhr in terms of biology at this stage so it's not like zika where the pregnant women being affected however we have noted a few problematic things around the policy measures that are in place that might negatively impact on access to reproductive health services and the first thing, we have a curfew in place, and we've had it for about three weeks now, which means that between 7 p.m. and 5 a.m., you're not allowed outside of your house, so you should be in place, shelter in place. So that is our curfew. So thereafter, you are allowed to move around. But the curfew doesn't actually have any emergency guidelines with it. So there is no indication as to what is possible to do if an emergency is to occur within those within those hours. So the government um, developed a policy, an RMNC, reproductive maternal newborn and child health policy during the COVID-19 pandemic, and mentioned what needed to be done in terms of caring for pregnant women and the birth of children within this period. But they didn't mention at all what happens within an emergency period, within the emergency hours. They mentioned it once and said that you should be able to call the toll line if you have an emergency, which, is not realistic if somebody is actually going into labor at 8 p.m. Calling a toll line is not the immediate thing that you would want. And this was clear because on the first night of curfew, 
a young gentleman who was trying to rush a pregnant woman to hospital was actually arrested and beaten and eventually died as a result of that brutality. And what he was trying to do was get somebody to a facility to access a skilled birth attendant. So those are some of the effects of the curfew in that women cannot access reproductive health services when they don't know if they can leave their house. And if they do leave their house, what would that mean? Police brutality around the curfew since it started. Um, the next thing is on SGBV and access to quality post-rape care services or post-violence services. And this has also been a bit problematic because obviously if you are in a situation of violence in this period, if it happens during curfew hours, you might not be able to leave. And if you're unable to leave, then you'll have to stay where the violence is. So if it's your partner who's being violent and you can't actually leave and you have to stay where your partner is being violent. And the government does have a, a gender-based violence toll-free number, but it doesn't work at night. Which then means if there's an emergency on violence, as any form of SGBV or GBV in the, during curfew hours, you don't. So GBV hotline does not work at night, which would then mean you are you might be forced to stay in a situation of violence. Or if you do leave your house, then it's to the police that I just said have been beating people almost to death. If you're caught outside, of, uh, if you're caught outside of curfew, or now, if you are found breaching curfew, then you'll be mandatorily quarantined at own cost for 14 days at least. So, and the minimum cost of mandatory quarantine is $20 in a government facility or $100 in a private hotel. So those are some of the implications of that. The other thing is that because the, though they've improved now, but initially when the curfew first started, the, the courts had scaled down all their services and then access to courts was limited. They're now reconsidering that and they're putting measures in place to address that. But the impact of that is that if anything SGBV related happens at the, in this period of time, you might not be able to access justice because one, the problem with the police that you have, two, the courts are not available for you. Um, finally, on essential SRHR services. So there is no guarantee that SRHR services are going to be made, are going to be kept essential. So the government policies government policy says that they must and speaks about maternal maternity care and newborn care must be made essential. However, there are COVID-19 specific um, facilities, both in Nairobi and outside Nairobi. And that then means within those facilities, only COVID-19 cases are being taken care of. So one example is Mbagadi Hospital, which is on Bagadi Way, as you would imagine, on Bagadi Way in Nairobi. But that hospital serves um, people from Kibera, people from Ngumo, um, quite a number of populations around there are actually served primarily by that hospital. So now that it's a COVID-19 facility, these persons don't have access to a primary, it's not really a primary health facility, but access to this hospital. And the closest hospital to Mbagadi is actually Pinata National Hospital, which is also a COVID-19 facility. So the likelihood that access to facilities is going to be affected and access to productive health services is going to be affected as a result of having specific facilities designated as COVID-19 is quite high, especially if there's no alternative facility in that area. So basically what we foresee being very problematic to reproductive health in this period is the curfew and its implementation. 
um, the possibility of violence. And we have already seen an increase in the, in the numbers with in February, 40% of all the cases recorded by the Office of Director of Public Prosecutions were under the Social Offenses Act. So there has been an increase in violence and limited access to services. And then the curfew, the violence, the access to facilities, especially for facility serves a specific population that's now COVID-19 facility. Yeah, those are the three main things that we foresee being very problematic. And then finally, obviously access to courts in the case of violence or in the case of any emergencies occurring in this period of time. I really appreciate you talking about these issues and I really appreciate the, the work that you guys put in with the report. So thank you very much. All right. Thank you so much. And nice speaking with you.